Welcome to the March of History. I'm your host, as always, Trevor Furness. And co-host here, Brendan Furness. And we have today a jam-packed episode for you with all sorts of scandals. It is episode 15. We've titled it Defiling the Bonadilla. And you'll learn all about what the Bonadilla is in a few moments. But before we get to the episode, I'm just going to say real quick again, our Instagram is at the March of History. That's at the March of History. And the Twitter is at March underscore history. You can also email us at themarchofhistory at gmail.com. We want to interact with our audience in all of the ways I just mentioned. So feel free to comment on pictures or posts, DM us, shoot us an email with feedback. We want to learn from you guys, find out what you like, what you don't like. We're happy to receive positive feedback and constructive criticism both. Yeah, I definitely recommend checking out the, the March of History Instagram page. There's a lot of cool pictures that Trevor's taken throughout his travels and trips uh, in the past in Europe. And there'll be a lot more of those coming up when he moves to Spain. Absolutely. And that's one thing I should mention. It's going to be the March of History Instagram account, but it won't specifically all be pictures from what we're talking about this week. I'll definitely put pictures of Rome, of the people we're talking about this week, but it's also mixed in with some other history too. But I figure anybody who enjoys a history podcast is going to enjoy some random history content on an Instagram account too. So why not? But moving on to our episode. So you'll remember Caesar's praetorship had a rocky start to it with him getting chucked out of the praetorship at one point, coming back into it, being falsely accused by various people looking for rewards and looking to start trouble. He was able to slap all these things down. And the rest of the year, he seems to have kind of just gone about his business as Praetor and nothing really scandalous or wild happens, or at least nothing relative to what we're used to with Julius Caesar. But alas, that is not to last for long. And by the end of 62 BC, which is the year that he's Praetor, another scandal of epic proportions happens and Caesar is smack dab in the middle of it, though this one is not his fault by any means. So to give you some backstory, the Romans always had a feast each year, really a uh, festival or celebration or religious rite called the Feast of the Bonadilla or the Feast of the Good Goddess. And it was a religious festival held exclusively by the women of Rome and the men were not allowed to be there, though it would be held at one of the senior magistrate, either a praetor or consul's house. And this particular year, it was at Julius Caesar's mansion in the Forum for probably two reasons. One, because he's praetor that year, and two, because he's the Pontifex Maximus. He's the head priest. It makes sense for it to be hosted at his house. Now, Brandon, just to explain a little bit to you and to the audience about some background on this feast, The Bonadilla is one of the divine protectors of Rome. So even though the men are uninvolved in this, they feel that it's a very important festival and very important that everything goes right. Like I said, the festival is held in a different senior magistrate's house each year. And it was not only frowned upon for men to be there, but it was illegal for them to be even near the house. It was kept secret from men. Men didn't know what happened there. They didn't know what the rites were. They didn't know what the rituals were. Even male creatures like dogs would be banned from the house. Even statues of men within the house would be veiled. That's how strict this is. Yes, this seems to be a a common theme, at least from a few things that I've seen in Roman culture. 
with both the this and the Vestal Virgins to kind of have this very sacred part of Roman either theology or culture that that women carry out, but that men they hold it in very high regard and and you know think it to be very important. They're very uninvolved in it and not not just like they're not interested in it, but they're not allowed to be involved in it. So it's it's interesting that there's something with such high theological stakes for them, but yet part of that the ritual is that they'd be completely uninvolved in it and have no partaking in it. Yeah, it's it's really it's it's like an abdication of religious power by men in a society of Rome, which is hyper masculine. And you compare that to the Roman Catholic Church, where women are pretty much shut out of any positions of power. It's pretty remarkable that way. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I, I guess like you can look at it both ways. Either they're, I guess, differentiating a lot between men and women, which often, I mean, today's times maybe would be seen as as sexist or something, but but for back then compared to what we know now, you know, the direction things will go with Christianity, it's a lot more advanced. Yeah, for antiquity, it's extremely progressive. But the, the entire festival, it, it's run by the women, it's organized by the matrons of Rome, specifically whoever's house it was it was being held at. In this case, it would be Caesar's wife, Pompeia. But we think that... It was likely Caesar's mother, who was very domineering, that was running this festival, Aurelia, who lived with them. And Aurelia seems to be more in charge of this house than Pompeia was, which Pompeia may have resented, and that comes into the story later. Caesar's sister, Julia, was also there. And during the festival, they do various sacrifices, rituals. It's mostly done at night. It's The rites are led by the Vestal Virgins, there is music, there is feasting, and the men you know, often found all of this very interesting that this whole festival happened of exclusively women. So you can imagine the, the rumors that went around in, in male-dominated Rome about what happened at these festivals. But what makes this particular feast interesting is that Pompeia, that's Julius Caesar's wife, is having or is attempting to have an affair with an extremely unique individual. Enter onto the stage Publius Claudius Pulcher, and we'll simply call him Claudius. Claudius is, I'm so excited to be talking about him now because he's one of the most fascinating people I've ever read about in history. One of the most unique, there's nothing else to call him but an individual because nobody else is like him. So at this time, he's 30 years old. He's a quaestor elect, so he's just getting started on his senatorial career but he's from an extremely old and arrogant and you might even say conniving patrician family, the Claudii. And the Claudii are you know, as old as the Julii or maybe even older, going back to the founding of Rome, and their pretensions match all of that description. But to give you an idea of the Claudii as a family, so they're, they're famous for their good looks and their unique or you might even say vindictive personalities. During the First Punic War, which was the war against Carthage, Claudius had an ancestor, also named Claudius, in charge of a fleet near Drapana, Sicily. And this Claudius wanted to launch a surprise attack against the Carthaginian fleet nearby. And so the Romans had what they called sacred chickens. And the sacred chickens were exactly what they sound like. They were chickens that were brought out on special occasions, and they would put grain on the ground, and if the chickens ate, it was a good omen. If the chickens refused to eat, it was a bad omen. In this case, the chickens refused to eat. 
And so Claudius, seeing this, rather than saying, okay, it's a bad omen, I'm not going to attack, says, quote, since they do not want to eat, let them drink. And then promptly chucks them overboard into the sea and drowns the sacred chickens. <laughs> he then launches his, his uh, surprise attack on the Carthaginians, and it results in one of the worst naval defeats in Roman history. And later he's brought back to Rome and he's put on trial for charges of impiety. But this is a classic story of how the Claudians behave. They are extremely, I mean, I don't know if you call it sacrilegious at all times, but they like to flaunt tradition. They like to do things their own ways, and they're almost so blue-blooded that they can get away with all these kind of bizarre behaviors that a family that's on the margins of Rome would never even dream of doing. So, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's so ironic that they're known for being such a distinguished and historic family, and meanwhile, you know, they're not upholding traditions, but rather breaking them in, you know, in very destructive ways. I yeah, mean, you I, could, even if you, say, disobey or didn't go along with the whole idea that the chickens were a bad omen, you don't have to throw them in the water and drown them. <laughs> like, you know, that's a type of uh, what I've come to kind of get a feel for to be the, you know, the real, like, kind of destructiveness of, of uh, the Claudians. Yeah, they, they seem to have reveled in flaunting traditions of the Republic, which is is so funny because they are such a traditional family in the Republic, meaning they go way back. But I love that story, just chucking the sacred chickens overboard. If they don't want to eat, let them drink <laughs> and drowns them. But yeah, he gets prosecuted for, or put on trial at least, for impiety in Rome afterwards. Another Claudius story, because all the men are called Claudius and all the women are called Claudia. And so years later, that Claudius who had thrown the sacred chickens overboard, his sister Claudia was stuck behind a crowd on her way to some games within Rome. And she wished aloud that her brother would return from the dead to get rid of some more of Rome's poor masses. <laughs> Which, in other words, is she saying that in his incompetence in his naval defeat, he let tens or maybe, I don't, I don't know how many thousands of Romans die you know, that came from the peasantry. And so she would wish that her brother was still alive to kill some more of them, to get these guys out of the street and out of her way so she can get to her games. <laughs> You know, yeah, those and, are the kind of things that they would say. Yeah, and maybe this is telling of of the another, I guess, characteristic that that I've noticed with the Claudians is that you know, despite these big destructive uh, actions that they take, they don't seem to be very deterred by it. I mean, the fact that she's able to to say such a thing, you know, rather than take it as some kind of great dishonor that her past ancestor did to make light of it. I mean, in a very bad way as a politician to say something about the people like that but the fact that they're not they don't they don't let those those blunders stop them from continuing on oh yeah they have nothing if not confidence and arrogance they yeah no, no shame at all in it oh yeah shame doesn't exist for this family i mean it really doesn't exist for this family because you're gonna see claudius fits right in this mold and pushes the envelope of even his own family which is saying something and just jumping back to that story, that Claudia was actually fined by the Roman government for saying that, uh, which I find kind of funny too. But young Claudius, jumping back to the time of Julius Caesar, remember he's 30 years old, has already made a name for himself as a bizarre yet very capable human being. So this guy's unique in that he seems to have been driven almost entirely by personal vendettas. 
more so than any historical figure I've ever read about or you know, listened to documentaries on, bar none. He is just solely driven by personal revenge. And he's actually quite capable of dishing out that personal revenge when he wants to, and often with unique and very creative methods, which fits in with his personality. So our first story, to give you an idea of who Claudius is in showing his actions, do you remember Pompey, the guy who skips all the rungs on the ladder and is the great war hero in Rome and was Sola's young commander, has been in the East. Remember, he fought all the pirates, destroyed them all, and then he stole the command in the East and has been fighting the king of Pontus, Mithridates. Well, the person he stole that command from, his name was Lucullus. And Lucullus was, and you don't have to remember Lucullus's name, you know, Claudius is the main person in this story, but Lucullus was Claudius's brother-in-law. So Lucullus got him a command in his army, but never promoted him very quickly. And so Claudius had a big grudge against Lucullus because he didn't feel like he was being promoted quickly enough to match his aristocratic Claudian ambitions. Now, meanwhile, Lucullus was very harsh on his soldiers and very disciplined, and they weren't happy with him. And a rumor began to circulate that Lucullus was not sharing the loot with his troops, a cardinal offense for a commander. Now, it probably wasn't true, but Claudius was happy to jump at this opportunity. And Claudius encourages the soldiers' anger and basically stokes the fire of their resentment. And he begins calling himself the soldier's friend because he's just there to help them. You know, he's just a benign helper, this Claudian aristocrat. <laughs> Nothing about personal gain here. Yeah, I mean, just to say that, like, I mean, maybe he did do something for them, like, to, to act as their friend, but... I kind of get the sense that he's just saying it and he you know, hasn't done anything at all. <laughs> and he's just sort of saying, oh, yeah, I'm the soldier's friend and, you know, no kind of credentials to say such a thing, but nonetheless, go ahead with it. Yeah, and I think that they like the idea of having this Claudii patrician on the common soldier side. Now, they're never going to turn right. away a guy like that. If it's just soldiers complaining, that's one thing. But if you have some some aristocrat on your side complaining with you, wow, now it sounds like yeah, not a, not a bad asset to have. Yeah. And so this so inflames the resentment of Lucullus' soldiers that they end up having an entire mutiny. And it's when that mutiny happens that Pompey is able to strike and take Lucullus' command away and send him back to Rome. So Claudius gets his revenge. You know, he finds unique ways. He's, it's almost like he has no motivations but revenge. He just goes from revenge to revenge on personal slights, and he has very thin skin. Now, after this, he basically gets the hell out of Lucullus' army because he's afraid for his life, probably, or that would be my guess, because Lucullus hasn't left yet. And he goes to stay with another brother-in-law. This is in, I think, in near Greece and Turkey area. And he's in charge of a fleet. And he ends up getting kidnapped by pirates while he's out sailing with his fleet. Now, you remember Julius Caesar got kidnapped by pirates, too. And when Julius Caesar got kidnapped by pirates, it added to his legend because he talked down to them. He laughed at their demand of 20 talents and said that he was worth 50 talents. He bossed them around while he was with them. He would laughingly say to them, I'm going to crucify you. And the second he got free, he raised his own personal army, sailed out there, captured all the pirates, promptly crucified them, but showed mercy and slit their throats. Great story. Well, Claudius doesn't have the same luck or doesn't have the same skill 
And he writes a letter to the king of Egypt and he demands the king of Egypt send a ransom for him just as Caesar had done. Well, Caesar hadn't done it to the king of Egypt, but he did it to other people. And the king of Egypt had no idea who Claudius was or else knew who he was and just didn't care and sent to the pirates an insulting two talents. So remember Caesar said I was worth 50. The king of Egypt didn't think that Claudius was worth any more than two talents. So he's, he's making a heck of an enemy there too. But this is humiliating to Claudius. And eventually Claudius does get free from the pirates and they, they think it's hilarious that the king of Egypt only sent two talents. They were all laughing at him. So eventually Claudius does get free from the pirates, but the price his enemies say was his anal virginity. <laughs> so again, this is a common story in Rome that the same kind of vicious rumors they said about Julius Caesar, they're now saying about Claudius. The Romans love to tell stories about people losing their anal virginity for various things because it's a great character assassination in the ancient world. So I, I think just the fact that it's so common makes it even less likely in the case of Caesar. Yeah, to be honest, when I first started hearing the, the rumors about Caesar losing his anal virginity over in the East, and it seemed that everyone in the Senate was talking about it, and so I thought, well, there must be some truth to it. But um, after hearing that it's such a common slander, you know, with that really different situation here, and they're also giving, say, the same the same thing. Maybe should just say, oh, yeah, this guy's gay or something, you know, some... Yeah, it's a common trope. Middle ...school insult, you know, today that someone would just toss it so and see if it sticks. Yeah, yeah, it's a common trope that the Romans used to assassinate people's characters. But what I found interesting, just to back up a bit, is that even though Claudius at this time, in his own right, is not very reputable, or like not as, wasn't known by the king of Egypt, which means that just by his name alone, the Claudian name, the king, the king of Egypt, the king of a whole, not independent sovereign, still part of Rome, but was even willing to respond to him at all. Because I mean, no one else, or most people, you send a, a letter to a king, I mean, I'm sure they're not even going to look at it. Yeah, but you got to remember, he is a puppet king of Rome. And the Claudians, yeah. he's probably dealt with Claudius' older brother or brother-in-law because the right. is in charge of the entire Eastern Command. So he's aware of who the guy is. And it probably would have been better to not respond at all than to respond with an insult with like two talents. <laughs> yeah. But that just gives you a flavor of who Claudius is, how personally revenge-motivated he is. And these stories of revenge will come up again and again throughout this podcast. So don't worry, Claudius is not going anywhere. But back to the Feast of the Bonadia. So Claudius is in love with Pompeia, that's Caesar's wife. But Aurelia, Caesar's mother, keeps a strict watch on Pompeii at all times. And Caesar may be out philandering with every woman he meets, but Aurelia is determined that Pompeii will not be doing the same. And I'm sure Caesar is also dealing the same way. And this made it very difficult and even dangerous for Claudius to try to meet with Pompeii and to try to have a love affair with her. Now, for some reason, they decide that a good time for them to meet in a time that they can get away with it, will be at the Feast of the Bonadia. Remember, this is the feast where no men are allowed. So how are they going to do this, and why are they going to do this? Well, the obvious why would be that Claudius is a Claudian, and they love flying in the face of any tradition or religious rites, you know, throwing the sacred chickens overboard. 
Right. Yeah. I was just about to say this reminds me exactly of the sacred chickens in the, in the sense that the ancestor quoting was doing one bad thing by not listening to the chickens, but then a whole other level that was completely unnecessary by tossing them overboard. Just like in this case, Claudius is having an affair with Caesar's wife. Doesn't mean he has to do it during the, the bonadilla. There's no sense to that. So just <laughs> always just some senseless, like doubling down on whatever it is that you're doing wrong. But Claudius is a wild character and, and he enjoys this kind of, you know, flying in the face of all the traditions and he actually get so they get Pompeia's servant in on the scheme, and she actually lets him in the house. And why does how can a man just walk into the house? It's because he's not dressed as a man. Claudius is in drag. He's dressed as a as a flute girl, and apparently he didn't have a beard, so he had a clean shaven face, and so he could get away with it. So he in this hyper masculine dominated Rome, he walks into the feast of the Bonadilla, the all female festival, dressed as a woman as a flute player. And so the servant of Pompeia tells Claudius to wait where he is, and she's going to go fetch Pompeia for him, and then they can have their you know meeting. But Claudius is not a patient individual, and he goes and starts wandering about the house impatiently looking for Pompeia, going from room to room. But he kind of makes sure to lurk in the shadows. Now, one of Aurelia, that's Caesar's mother's servants, is walking around the house and finds him and invites him to join the other women. You know, he's a flute player. What are you doing? He's hiding in the shadows there. Come join the other women. Claudius tries to, at first, kind of you know, stay away from her, but she's insistent. And then Claudius says to her that he's waiting for Pompeia's maid. But his voice, obviously, is unmistakably masculine. There is no mistaking the fact he may look like a woman, but that's a man. And the second he opens his mouth, he gives himself away. And this woman, Aurelia's servant, runs screaming through the house to where the other women are gathered and tells them all that there's a man in the house. And the women go into a sort of panic. But Aurelia thinks quick. It's not for nothing that Caesar is her son. So she covers all the sacred things and stops proceedings because you can't have any man seeing what they are. She locks all the doors so that the man who's in the house can't get away. And she leads a torch-lit procession from room to room with all the women looking for who this man is. And finally, they find Claudius hiding under a bed, apparently of Pompeia, Caesar's wife's servant's bed. And so, you know, he's hiding under the bed, dressed in drag, and all the women find him, and they pull him out. And the world of Roman aristocrats is not a big one. So everybody recognizes that this is Claudius. They all know exactly who this is. And they drive him out of the house, throw him out. And then Aurelia turns to all the women and tells them to go home, the festival's over, and tell all their husbands what they have seen. And by the next morning, all of Rome has heard of Claudius's cross-dressing escapade. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many points where I feel like Claudius could have made just a better decision or, you know, again, just not had, you know, an unbelievable tolerance for risk. I mean, if he had just stayed in the in the initial room and waited for Pompeia's servant to go get her and, and bring her to him. He could have avoided this whole mess, but I mean, it seems like again and again, there's just kind of a, a lack of sense of, of risk or, or at least, you know, any kind of hesitance to break traditions. Yeah, I think that for Claudius, life without risk was a life not worth living. Yeah. It wasn't a, a choice of do I take a risk or not? It was how much risk. And in this case, right. it seems that he 
underestimated how much of a risk this was. And so Rome is, as I keep saying, it's a hyper-masculine society. Even having a goatee, like a, a goatee beard, or touching your head with one finger can be marks of effeminacy and can get you called effeminate. You know, even a guy like Julius Caesar, who, you know, today we think of as kind of like an alpha male guy, is considered effeminate by the Romans. So being cross-dressing and crashing a sacred female festival was just mind-blowing to the Roman aristocracy and to the Roman people in general. They could, just couldn't even wrap their heads around this. You know, not only was it so against the cultural norms of how a man should be behaving, but it was illegal and it offended the public of Rome. Not only that, it was sacrilege. It incurred the wrath of the gods upon the entire Roman people. So people are in an uproar about this. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think, if, you know, is there, was there any ulterior motive or any reason why Claudius would have? Because, yeah, I mean, he could have visited Pompeia. Caesar's wife on any other day, it seems. And then but he decides to go during this festival. I'm just trying to think if there's anything that, you know, any kind of political or other reason that he... No, no, he's who he is. I mean, they say that Aurelia kept a strict watch on Pompeia, so he couldn't get to her before then. But it's not as if this was the time where she had the least watch on Pompeia. They were all in the same house. You know, this is... You know, this is just him yeah. thinking like this is going to be fun to flaunt these traditions and, you know, I'll, I'll sneak in, I'll see her, I'll sneak out, I'll tell all the cool set in Rome what I did and they'll be like, oh, or all Claudius, you're so bad. But it, it didn't end up that way. He got caught. Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, he did have that idea that he's going to tell everyone anyway. And then so, you know, as long as he had that in his head, he probably never even thought about, oh, what if I, what if I get caught there? He's going to tell everyone, at least he's looking at it in this positive way that there's going to be some kind of positive outcome from him telling people and he'll have control of the situation. And so that's probably blocking him from seeing any kind of negative outcome from people finding out. Yeah. I think that there's a big difference between him, you know, people hearing a rumor that Claudius may have been there and and half the people probably just wouldn't even believe that because this festival had never been interrupted by a man before. And Claudius actually being caught there and all the women stopping mid-festival and going home and telling their husbands what happened. That's a big difference, right? And so I, I think that he's like many people that take big risks. He just didn't think he'd get caught. It's not that he thought through the potential outcome of what would happen if he got caught. I think he just never thought that he would get caught. But he gets caught. And so it's a huge scandal now. And people are not willing to let this go. This is sacrilege. This is illegal. So a tribune of the plebs impeaches Claudius for profaning the Bonadia, the good goddess, and just throws onto the list for good measure other crimes, such as incest with his own sister, which, by the way, is probably true since her own husband, the guy Lucullus, that Claudius had stolen command from or had you know, stoked the uh, mutiny against. Lucullus' marriage to Claudius' sister. And Lucullus himself says that Claudia, Claudius' sister, has incest or has an affair, an incestual affair with Claudius and with his other sister. So he's got two sisters. They're known to be extremely beautiful, and they're also wild individuals, and we're going to introduce them later. But supposedly what I'm saying is that Claudius is having an affair with both of them, too. I don't, I don't even know if you call that an affair. How yeah, I mean, you would think, like, if that's, like, a, a known thing, why do they even need to make up the, the rumor or... Maybe it was a rumor, maybe not, that he traded his, his anal virginity to 
to get out of the the pirate situation. You would think there'd be enough about him, you know, with that gossip, which was uh, you know, seemed to be people seemed to be pretty confident was true. But yeah. I guess, well, it's just good fun though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not just on, yeah. However, you know, Claudius comes from a very powerful family. It's not for nothing that the Claudians feel that they can flaunt all traditions and get away with it. What's more is Claudius is a people pleaser in Rome, and the general masses love Claudius. So you have this thing where the aristocracy is united against, or many of them are united against Claudius, especially the optimates, and they want to punish him. Not all of them, because like I said, there's a powerful family. Plus, there's the people, the general masses, are head over heels in support for Claudius. So it's not an easy thing to convict a guy like this. But flash to Caesar, because this all happens in his house and under his family's watch, even though he's not there personally. And now he's in a bind because he's been cuckolded. I'm sorry, he has cuckolded many husbands. That's kind of what he does. He goes around and he has affairs with everybody's wives. And it would look hugely hypocritical for him to try to claim the moral out or moral high ground or moral outrage against Claudius for having an affair with his wife. It would look kind of ridiculous, right? Though cuckolded Roman husbands were known to even set slaves onto a man that they call having an affair with their wife to beat the person or rape them or even castrate them. So Remember when I said that Caesar takes a lot of risks in having all these affairs around town? It's really a risk. You know, if you can be castrated or raped or beaten for this. Now, I don't think that that stuff would happen to somebody as high up as Julius Caesar, but these are not uncommon things in Roman culture. Also, Caesar doesn't want to admit to being cuckolded. This isn't embarrassing. He's supposed to be the guy that does the cuckolding, not the one who gets cuckolded. And so... The final thing in his motivation is that he doesn't want to get on the wrong side of the Claudii. He knows in a few years he's going to be running for consul. He knows that the Claudians are a very well-connected family and one that he would like to have on his side. And he knows that Claudius is psychotic and bent on revenge on anyone who does any kind of slight towards him. So he doesn't, you know, this is a difficult mess to get himself out of. So how, how he does it, or what he does, is he divorces Pompeia, his wife, but refuses to give a reason why. And during this trial of Claudius, Caesar is summoned as a witness to testify against Claudius. And Caesar says he has nothing to, nothing to say against Claudius and knows nothing of the affair, or of any affair. And the prosecution asks why he divorced his wife if he was unaware of any affair. And this is when Caesar replies with his famous line, quote, Caesar's wife must be above suspicion, end quote. And that's, you know, that's the famous line, Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. You know, why did he say this? It may have been what he really thought, that though he's allowed to go out having, you know, sleeping with everybody's wives, his wife is supposed to be a model of modesty. Or he may have just wanted to get the people on his side and not testify against Claudius. So he divorces her because he doesn't want to be the cuckolded husband, but he just says that he has no knowledge of any affair because he doesn't want to testify against Claudius. And he also just doesn't want to piss the Claudii off. But interestingly enough, though Caesar chooses not to testify, his mother and sister, so Aurelia and his sister Julia, both testify against Claudius, which is kind of an interesting glimpse into the power dynamics in their household, that it's not like Caesar forbids everybody from testifying and they don't. 
his mother and sister still, you know, go up and testify of their own accord. Yeah, that's interesting that, I mean, Caesar's, you know, such a prominent figure in, in the Roman aristocracy, but yet his mother and sister are still able to defy him. Unless I wonder if there's anything, I mean, is it possible that could have been a planned thing? I don't know if there's anything to gain from Caesar saying he doesn't know anything about it, but then his mother and sister testifying if in some way that could have been part of the plan. He did talk to them and, and work that out with them. But yeah, again, I don't know enough about it to know if there would be anything to gain from from doing that. Yeah, and I don't know if they were defying him, you know, whereas if he directly told them, I don't want you to testify, and they did it anyway, or if he said, hey, you guys have to make up your own minds. I won't stop if you want to testify. We don't know. But it's just interesting to see that that division existed in the family. Caesar was looking out for his own career and his own self-interest, and his mother and sister were looking out for the Feast of the Bonadilla because they wanted retribution for what Claudius had done. Now, after this whole incident, the trial is still going on, but Caesar's part in it, at least, is for now done. You know, he's testified. Now, they may call him back to testify. He may get into more trouble. Who knows? So he decides to get the heck out of Rome. And he's got a province chosen for the the coming year. It's uh, further Spain. And the Senate has not confirmed him in this appointment yet and has not allocated funds to him. Despite this, Caesar tries to leave Rome immediately and head for further Spain, which Suetonius says, and that's one of the primary sources, he says that this is illegal. But another source says that it may have just been because he wanted to get out of Rome before anyone asked further questions or before he got further embarrassed, but also that a number of Spanish allies were writing to him and asking for his protection against some enemies that were invading. So he could have had a legitimate excuse to leave early like this, but still, he tries to get out of Rome. But his creditors won't let him leave. They're afraid that if Caesar leaves, he may die in some war in Spain, and they will get no money for all the money they put out to support his career. And they physically won't let him leave Rome. And so Caesar is in despair, and he even says, and this is a quote, quote, I need 25 million sestercii just to own nothing. In other words, I need to make 25 million just to have a balance of zero on the money I have. And he's really in despair about this. And to put this into some perspective, later on when Caesar's a general, he will double his legionaries' pay to 900 sestercii a year. So he, he doubles their pay. So before that, it was 450 sestercii a year. This guy's in debt for 25 million. That's astounding. And yeah, I think and it's basically co- like, it's like an army, you know, you could hire an army for that amount of money. If, you could. If it's and 900 I, sestercii for, for one legionary per year. I think he's been operating on, on a lot of borrowed time with all this, and it's finally, the chickens have come home to roost, so to say, and his creditors are up in arms about how much money they've lent him and how little return that they've seen. So Caesar has to think quick. And he goes and appeals to his biggest benefactor and richest man in Rome, Crassus, who agrees to guarantee at least the most skeptical of Caesar's creditors. And this allows Caesar to leave and get out of Rome and escape this whole embarrassing trial and the divorce he just had and everything else. But meanwhile, we go back to the trial because that hasn't finished yet. So even though Caesar's left Rome, the Claudius case continues. 
And Claudius claims that he was actually not at the Bonadia Festival at all because he was in a completely different town in Italy that day. So it couldn't possibly have been him. Now, Cicero, remember, he's the great orator, the great, uh, he's, he's the guy that helped put down the Catalan conspiracy. Cicero had seen Claudius earlier that day in Rome, but just didn't want to get involved, didn't want to testify against him. Maybe it's because he knew who Claudius was and he just didn't want to piss off the Claudii family. He just figured it wasn't worth it. But Cicero's wife thinks that Cicero's having an affair with Claudius' sister, Claudia. And this is the most ridiculous accusation because Cicero is not a ladies' man and Claudia is a queen of the cool set and she's extremely attractive and would have been in completely different social circles than a Cicero would have been. But Cicero's wife badgers him to testify against Claudius because she's mad and thinks that he's having an affair with Claudia. And yeah, so, I, I, yeah I, I don't get – I mean, how does, how does one even have to do with the other? I mean, what does him testifying against Claudius have to do with, you know, if he's having an affair with Claudia? I guess maybe his It's a way wife. for her to strike at Claudia. Yeah, I just uh, you would think that maybe Cicero would defend the family in general, and that's how. But uh, but yeah, yeah, I think that she felt that it would strike at Claudia if her brother gets embarrassed like this, and it would embarrass her entire family. You know, she wants to embarrass Claudia's family, and so Cicero finally gives in and says, "Fine," and and he testifies, and he says that he saw Claudius earlier that day, and earns Claudius's enmity for the rest of his life from this. Well, this and a few other things, but this is the big starter to those two, or at least to Claudius's hatred of Cicero. Now, the case continues, and Crassus sees an opportunity here. You have Claudius, this young patrician. He's on the make. He's good-looking. He's talented. He's obviously a weird and wild guy, but he could have some potential. And so Crassus loves helping or lending money to young men on the make that need help. So this is his opportunity. So he starts bribing the jury with favors, with appointments, with meetings and introductions, all sorts of way, all sorts of ways. And the jury on the final day where they're supposed to give their verdict, they go ahead and ask for a bodyguard, which is usually a sign that they're going to convict or they're going to do the unpopular but right decision and they want a bodyguard to protect them from the mob. That's going to be mad if they convict Claudius. But because of the bribes, the intimidation, and popular support, and the power of the Claudii, the court is afraid to convict. And so most of the judges end up writing their verdict as being illegible. You know, they just scribble something that can't be read at all. And so by doing this, they don't piss off the Claudii because they don't convict him, and they don't piss off the nobility by saying that he's innocent. They just write a whole bunch of of uh, votes that can't be counted, basically. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know, I find it hard to believe at the same time that the nobility would actually be convinced that they they were sincerely trying to write a conviction and then just didn't know how to write anymore and, and wrote illegible. I I can't help but feel they must have pissed someone off, but I guess it's less than it would have been otherwise if they outright let him go or made a clear decision one way or the other. Yeah, no one's convinced by this. Everybody knows exactly what they're doing. <laughs> you know, this is a they're just trying to walk this, they're put in a difficult position. They're trying to walk this middle line and piss nobody off. Of course, that's not really possible. 
And Catullus, you remember, he's the basically head of the optimates, says at the end of the case, after he sees that Claudius is not going to be convicted, he says to the jury or the uh, judges, why did you ask for a guard? Were you afraid of being robbed? <laughs> Essentially saying that, were you afraid of being robbed of your bribes that you've taken? Is that why you asked for a guard? Uh, <laughs> because you know, usually if you ask for a guard, it's because you're going to convict and then they don't convict. So why did you ask for a guard? Were you afraid of being robbed? <laughs> it's a great line. So that's going to wrap it up for the podcast today. In our next week, Caesar's going to go off in the governorship of Spain, and he starts a war in Spain and actually wins himself a triumph. And things heat up in the Senate between him and Cato upon his return, and the rivalry becomes even more toxic, you might say. Until next time on the March of History.